is the Equity Experience Podcast, a space created for every educator or school leader who is authentically pursuing equity and inclusion in their classrooms and schools. I'm your host, Dr. Carla Manning, and I welcome you. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Carla Manning. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the show today. On today's show, we have Another exciting episode lined up for you, another exciting conversation. We have with us again, Dr. Kazimbi on the call. Dr. Kazimbi, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Excellent, excellent. Well, Kazimbi and I have been good friends for a long time, and it's always great to have conversation with him. Kazimbi is a very excellent, proud, and very deep scholar about the work that he does, and I'm glad to have him on. Today, we're going to really talk about and dive into Juneteenth, what Juneteenth means to K-12 educators, what it means to schools, what it means to us as Americans, and then what this means for equity and inclusion for K-12. So, Welcome. Thanks again for being here, Kazibi. Come on in. You got it. You got it. It's great to be here. Excellent. Excellent. So, Kazimbi, you know, right before you're about to share your quote with us, just give us some history about Juneteenth. What is Juneteenth? Why should we celebrate this holiday? What does Juneteenth mean to Black Americans? What does it mean to Americans? And then what are your thoughts on the recent legislation of recognizing Juneteenth as a holiday? Right. Right. Great question. Well, Juneteenth, if you can imagine, and zoom back in time to 1863, Honest Abe pins the Emancipation Proclamation. So January 1, 1863, there's just jubilation throughout the land. Black people are proclaiming that it's over at last. The long, dark night is over. We can rejoice. We can. However, there were a quarter of a million Black folks in Texas, in the state of Texas, at that period who did not get that news. That news did not make it down to them for at least another two, almost two and a half years. So these Black people, these Africans were laboring and languishing in enslavement while their brothers and sisters to the North were experiencing the Emancipation Proclamation. We should pause here and say that it was not the Emancipation Proclamation that actually freed Black people. It was actually the ratification of the 13th Amendment in December 6, 1865. So the proclamation was just that. It was a proclaiming of Abe Lincoln. But Abe Lincoln, in terms of what was going on in the situation in Texas in this period, Abraham Lincoln was so hated by white Southerners that he couldn't even get a cup of coffee in Richmond, Virginia. That's how hated he was. So the effect of the Emancipation Proclamation was null and void in a state as far away as Texas. Plus, Texas, you got to remember, it was once its own country. So the Republic of Texas was founded circa 1836. And so there was a great deal of contestation between the uh, whites in Texas, the Texanos and the Mexican government. And the entire linchpin in that argument was black people. So fast forward to 1865, June, Major General Gordon Granger, who was a Union general, Union army leader, he makes his way down to Galveston, Texas. And it was there in Galveston, Texas, that he delivered General Order Number Three. And General Order Number Three was essentially a summarized version of the Emancipation Proclamation. And the Blacks, our brothers and sisters in Texas, finally got the word that they were now freed from bondage. So with Black people hearing that news, of course, it became a cause for celebration. 
And so June 19th became a very historic day. In the very beginning, it was at first known as Emancipation Day. It was known as Jubilee Day. And then finally, they decided to call it Juneteenth. And it was a holiday. It became a holiday, a period where Black people engaged in festive activities as well as solemn activities. You see a lot of prayer meetings going on in churches. You see a lot of cookouts, a lot of food being cooked, a lot of young people. You see parades. You see all of these different ways to recognize the fact that now a quarter of a million Africans in the state of Texas were now able to enjoy their freedom. Something else that gets lost in the story, though, is the white backlash against the pronouncement of Black freedom. So when Black people got their liberation out of bondage, there was an immediate response from white former slave masters. Some of them refused to let the Black people go. So in effect, engaged in a kidnapping. There were mass public floggings and mass beatings. There were mass lynchings because they were upset, these white slaveholders, that they had to give up Black people who were considered capital and labor. And they had to give that up. Some of them didn't give the enslaved Africans the news or the newly freed. They didn't give them the news until harvest time. They wanted them to work all the way up until the last bales of cotton and the last tomatoes were ripe and ready to go to market and stuff. So in any event, it became something that was a source of great pride for our people, a time to mark not only what we had gone through, but what we were now in. And so right around 1872, In Houston, a group of uh, ministers and businessmen came together because they also would outlaw the practice and the celebration of Juneteenth observances. And so to get around that, Black people started buying their own land. And on this private land that they now own, they began to have their own celebrations and observances. So 1872, a group of uh, Houston-based businessmen and uh, ministers bought a park called Emancipation Park like a 10, 11 acre park there. And so since that period in 1872 up until today, it's been known as like ground zero for Juneteenth celebration. So for a long time, up until the 1950s, Juneteenth was something that was an effort to try to make it a sort of a, put it in a national consciousness. Right around the 1950s, interest in it began to wane. And then it was the civil rights movement and the Black Power movement in the 1960s that created renewed interest in Juneteenth. And now, of course, early part of this month in Galveston, Texas, they commissioned a 5,000-foot mural that is actually commissioned on the spot where Major General Gordon Granger read General Order Number 3. And of course, as you alluded to when we first began, the government of the United States has now announced a federal holiday for Juneteenth. So it's had a long, contentious history, but it is something that Black people continue to look to as a source of great pride and for, for obvious reasons. Excellent, Kazimbi. Thank you for that, that rich history. How can educators and school admin celebrate and honor Juneteenth? What can be done in K-12 schools to recognize and incorporate this history? Well, I think, you know, I'll share with uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson on this point that um, we are never concerned, and Dr. Woodson himself, the godfather of Black history, was never concerned about Black history. His concern was Blacks in history. So what educators and school leaders can do first is not see this as some sort of anomaly. It is the history that very specifically and distinctly concerns Black Americans, but it is a part of a larger narrative. It is the oldest. It's 156 years old this year, and it's the oldest public observance of the commemoration of the abolishment of slavery in this country. So I think educators and school leaders can embrace it 
the way we embrace other observances having to do with the national conscience, having to do with solidarity, having to do with democratic expressions of freedom. This is something that all children should learn about, Black, white, Latinx, Asian. All children should learn about this because it concerns them. And I think in this particular era that we're living in, where we're seeing a retrenchment of anti-Blackness, anti-Black racism, we're seeing a retrenchment against Asian people, other people of color, we're just seeing this spike in xenophobia and white extremism at the same time. We're still not out of the shadow of the specter of Trumpism. So at the same time, all of this is going on. We got voter suppression going on right now. 389 bills introduced in 48 states to suppress the votes of black and brown people. So this is the climate, the season, the era that is very, very important for us to engage and leverage all forms of affirming democratic, inclusive practices. And I think Juneteenth provides a perfect segue into that kind of recognition. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would like to make a transition, but to still stay on this topic, though. Earlier, you mentioned when giving a history about Juneteenth, when the two brothers purchased a piece of land and how that land is now recognized, as you said, as ground zero. And one of the concerns today with equity inclusion in schools is the acquisition of certain land in terms of zoning, geography, housing and residential issues. What are your thoughts on that? I'm making this connection myself as I'm listening, but what are your thoughts on how we address issues of land ownership, land acquisition, residential zoning patterns, and how these zoning patterns and residential issues create inequities? How can we think about this in the critical issue as a way of closing a particular equity gaps within schools? Yeah. Does that well, make sense, what I'm asking here? Yeah, I think I understand the question. You know, when you think about people and home ownership, when you purchase a home, you're not just buying a home. You're buying a neighborhood and you're buying a community, right? And so if you look at the fact of redlining and redistricting as a part, an official part of official government policy that excluded Black people that relegated Black people to the worst parts of the city, that essentially siphoned their tax dollars, but then used those tax dollars in affluent areas of the city and let the other parts of the city where we were located go fallow. This was official policy from the Federal Housing Authority. And this is also true when the federal home loans, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were created. It essentially incentivized whites to essentially move away. It essentially penalized them if they lived in multicultural neighborhoods. So you can read Lowen's book, Sundown Towns. He talks about this. There's another book by Rothstein that deals with redlining. And they talk about how actually the federal government actually created segregation. Mm-hmm. Right. Fast forward that we were talking earlier about Juneteenth. Tulsa, Oklahoma is in the news right now. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Tulsa was just one of numerous towns, Black-owned towns that were set up on and ultimately destroyed largely because of white economic jealousy. Mm-hmm. I just screened, uh, I watched Rosewood the other night. I hadn't seen Rosewood in a long time. But these were Black autonomous communities that, you know, had a professional class. There were barbers and teachers. A lot of the people lived in brick houses. They had businesses and lumber mills and things of that nature. And so when whites destroyed these towns like Brooklyn, Illinois, Rosewood, Florida, Durham, North Carolina, 
Tulsa, Oklahoma, on and on and on, they essentially ran the Blacks off and essentially seized their land. So we're dealing now with serious historical racialized hierarchy of inequity that continues to sort of echo across the centuries, not least of which is the mortgage meltdown of 2008. I'm recalling now where Black people lost something like 80 to 85 percent of generational wealth and so lost a lot of their homes underwater in their home. And then even those that survived the mortgage meltdown, they found themselves underwater in their properties and stuff. So I think the government and white citizenry collectively who have responded to incentives that have been offered through the government, they've done a great job of disenfranchising Black homeowners. I think the Black farmers are in the news right now because they just got the shaft, again, from the government that has put the kibosh on the loan forgiveness program for Black farmers. So land ownership, as Malcolm said, land is the basis of all independence. It is very much, I think, a part of K-12 conversations and education. When you look at public schools, you're not talking about so much academic issues. You're actually really talking about real estate issues as well. It's an intersectional, entangled sort of Gordian knot of issues that are going on there. And there's no one single issue that typifies what is happening. It's all sort of like intersectional. Yeah. As educators, do we have a responsibility to think about the economic and financial well-being of our students and our students' lives? Is that a priority for us as educators and, think, you know, students and families? Yeah, I think it should be. This is why I tell my pre-service students all the time that you have to disabuse yourself from the notion that when you hear a word, a term like equity or diversity or inclusion, that, oh, yeah, that's something for the people of color. No, that's something for your collective humanity, Mm -hmm. right? The United States is either going to admit Black people on the basis of democracy or you will not have a country. Mm -hmm. That's the plain, that's the bottom line fact right there. Mm -hmm. It's going to be freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. Mm -hmm. And so I tell them that these things, you have to have a broader view of what it means to effectively and successfully educate students. Why? The Carsey Institute at the University of New Hampshire came out with a report that dealt with white mortality. And what it stated in the Carsey Institute's report is that on average, the average age of white people in this country is around 42 years old. They have a zero mortality birth rate. That means that every baby born is a baby that dies. There's a serious amount of white people, a high propensity who are dying what they call deaths of despair. These are unnatural deaths that they're dying. They're dying from gunshot suicide. They're dying from opioid overdoses. They're dying these unnatural deaths. And the white people who are actually dying, by and large, are non-college-educated, poor, and working-class white people. They also look at demographic trends among Latinx people in this country. The average age of a Latinx person in citizen of the United States, 22. That means they're working age and fighting age. That means that white America is getting older and grayer. The young people, black and brown people who are coming behind them, if we don't, in our educational system, create a way for these young, vibrant, black and brown people 
to have gainful employment and a wholesome future with a living wage where they're able to raise a family of four or three, then even if you don't care about that, how then are you going to create an educated class that is able to generate enough money to pay into the social safety net to take care of old white people? So they should have a very serious stake in the outcome if they can see beyond the veil of their own whiteness. You know what I mean? Even if you don't care about the quality of education in black and brown schools, guess what? You're paying for it. Boston University does these labor market studies that talk about the cost of dropouts. Mm. Why are the children dropping out? Largely because they're bored. And so I read a report a few years back. It was kind of dated. It was like 2013. And they just looked at one state, Illinois. Back in 2013, it cost Illinois something like $800 million because of high school dropouts. Wow. Wow. These are people, if they drop out of school, they don't go into the overground economy. They go into the underground. The underground, yeah. And when they do that, guess what? These are folks who are not paying taxes. Mm. These are people that are not buying goods and services like automobiles and homes and appliances. Things that you what? Tax. Things that you can do what? Generate a tax base and a tax Back into an economy. Yeah. So for white people and others to have just this limited gaze about what it means to be equitable and to practice equity. And if they can get away from this NIMBY mindset, it's not in my backyard mindset, and see the broader human picture, that I think is going to be the difference between whether or not you have a society that is thriving and flourishing and whether you have a society that's a civilization Mm. or whether you have a society where people are just cockroaching and that's just kind of a society. That's not a civilization, it's a society. So it's going to be up to the individuals. So what I heard, Kazimbi, is that essentially it is costing the example that you gave Illinois, for example, it costs Illinois $800 million to not have their students engaged in ways that will eventually lead to dropouts. That's right. Because when they drop out, they increase their chances of getting involved in the court system, in the prison right. system, yep. etc. Yep. They increase their chance. Somebody is paying for these Narcan shots. Somebody pays, you know, it's not free health care. You know, someone, we pay, those of us who yeah, work in paychecks, yeah, we pay for the public clinics. Yes, yeah. And I'm all, I'm good with that. I don't mind yeah. my tax dollars going for that. But yeah. I'm just saying that the more people, though, if you continue to create these hostile educational spaces mm-hmm. that drive students out, if you mm-hmm. continue to send in these racist, uh, closed-minded, bigoted, white teachers that do what? Drive students out. They come in with their deficit frameworks and their reductive approaches to the professional field of education. Then you're going to continue to drive a wedge into your society. And ultimately, the middle will cease to be able to hold. And then you're going to see some residual social issues and some social problems that are just going to increase. We have the have-nots and the have-gots And the gulf between the have-nots and the have-gots is getting wider and wider and wider. Mm, mm, And it's mm. getting there. Used to be, I mean, it didn't used to be this way in this country. Used to be with a high school diploma, you'd be able to make a pretty good living. Yeah. You know, you can get get on a GM or Ford or something like that. Yep. yep. I like that these days. Yep. Yep. You're going into these these gig economy jobs and driving for Uber Eats and 
you, 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 no insurance. Yeah, yeah. Dunkin' yeah. Donuts, no insurance. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's creating a real volatile situation. And then you have a lot of, you look at China, the knee-jerk reaction for people is to get mad at China. All China's trying to, no, what China did is what the United States didn't do over the last 60 years. China didn't invest trillions and trillions of dollars in endless war like the United States did. That's why the United States is behind China. China invested its money in itself and its citizens and its infrastructure. That's why it's ahead. For the entire something like 248-year existence of the United States as a nation, it is only known 16 years of peace. It's the rest of that time has been prosecuting wars and spending, 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 spending on war and military and armaments and all of this kind of stuff. And when you do that, guess what? As Dr. King said, when a nation becomes more concerned about guns than butter, then that nation will soon mm. find itself in serious, serious trouble from within. Mm. Not from mm. a threat without, but mm. from a rot and a decadence that's within. That's unfortunately, that's where we are. Zimbi, what are your thoughts? Earlier we were talking about Tulsa and right now a lot of folks are asking, demanding, confronting the fact that reparations haven't been issued out to the survivors of the riots. What are your thoughts about that? Even reparations, you know, even what are your thoughts about reparations? Do you think this is a necessary topic? Why do you think ancestors of the enslaved have not received reparations as of yet, particularly when other oppressed racial groups have received reparations. You know, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I was trying to find this quote Mm -hmm. in that Gordon Reed's piece on Juneteenth. It's in the book somewhere. I can't find it, but I have the quote. I'd like to read it to you. It's very short. Okay. He writes, and I want you to think about this in relationship to your question Mm -hmm. and in relationship to us in 2021. Mm -hmm. She writes, Almost from the very beginning of their time in North America, Blacks have shown their deep and patriotic attachment to the country they helped to build, even as they have been utterly realistic about the way many of their fellow countrymen viewed them. This is the key right here. Persisting in the face of that reality has been a struggle for centuries. Mm. In other words, Black people, since our time in this country, have been in it, but not of it. Mm. We continue to get these messages that the more we assert and state our citizenship, the more our fellow countrymen contest it. So we're walking like this tightrope that, you know, your citizens in terms of we want your tax money, we want your sons and daughters for our military. We want customers. Mm. But when it comes to availing yourselves of the other aspects of your citizenship, i.e. the franchise voting, Mm. Houston, we have a problem. Mm. So in terms of the reparations piece, these conversations, unfortunately, interestingly, too, the Lancet, which is one of the premier medical journals in the world, it just came out with reports of the study that was done that said that if you're a right wing conservative person, they equate people like that with not having very deep thoughts around complex political issues. So it is very easy for people who are, say, Trumpers to think in binaries Mm -hmm. in terms of these very complex issues. It either is or it's not. Mm -hmm. 
And so when you think about certain terms and certain issues that just touch them off, reparations is one, critical race theory is one, Black Lives Matter is one. Mm. These things are just flashpoints for a lot of people. So with reparations, I think it's a very important discussion that's been going on for a long time. And I think it needs to have some serious, serious support at the constitutional level, at the federal level. There needs to be the people who have been doing the grassroots work around education, particularly in cities like New York and Chicago and California out on the West Coast. They need to be brought into these conversations so that they don't get watered down. But I don't see it as a realistic thing that's going to happen because it was set too much of a precedent. They were to do that. First of all, how do you figure what the dollar amount is? Because it's, I mean, it's so, and then beyond just giving people checks and what other forms can reparation right. take place? Yeah, that's my, how I'm thinking. Yeah, my price is five states, you know, figure it up. And they're not going to pay that. <laughs> not even money, just just, <laughs> just give five me a state. <laughs> fertile and minerally rich states, not the landlocked border states. I'll take some ocean property, oceanfront property. But I think, no, I think it's a serious Seriously, no, for real, seriously. It would just yeah. set too much of a precedent. Yeah, if seriously. If you started giving back, you then got to talk about massive reparations with the Native Americans. Yeah. I know several groups have gotten casinos and stuff, but for the most part, the Native Americans are not indigenous First Nations people. They are in a horrible situation. Yeah. Then you're going to have to start talking about true reparations with other aggrieved groups. Yeah you know, in the United States and then abroad, most closely in Central America and in Haiti and the Caribbean. So I think it's such a hot potato issue Mm -hmm. that most even centrist white politicians don't want to talk about it. We know extreme right don't want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. They don't even want to acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. But centrist and left-leaning whites Mm. A lot of them get shaky. They don't Mm. even want to have the conversation about Mm. it. So I think Mm. what we should do, one of the things we can do in the meantime and in between time, you know, the best way to defeat ignorance is to read books. Yeah. I think that that's one of our inheritances that we can do for our young people is to engage in mass education on reparations. Yeah. Yeah. Reparations. Why? Like, why is the conversation even happening? And I think that would be a worthwhile use of our time. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Kazimbi, thank you so much, good brother. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Earlier, you mentioned that this coming weekend would be the fifth time where you've delivered a lecture or a presentation on the topic of Juneteenth. What are you going to talk about in your lecture? Well, I'm going to talk about the origins, how it developed, but also its cultural historical significance. Mm-hmm. I'm going to link it to a conversation about the backlash that ensued. You cannot talk about Juneteenth without talking about the Plessy v. Ferguson. Mm-hmm. You can't talk about Juneteenth without talking about Red Summer of 1919 and all of that. Chicago. And then I'm going to end, though, by talking about culture as resistance. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk about this African survival thrust. And so Juneteenth is merely one expression, one manifestation of how Black people have been able to preserve ourselves over time. You know, we've used various modes, militaristic modes, educational modes, religious modes, different ways to preserve our history and our humanity. But I'm going to talk about it as the importance of culture as a tool of affirmation and as a tool of transformation. That's kind of what we're going to end with. I like that. Talk about it. Yeah. I got about 
like 60 minutes. So I got some good time to kind of unpack it. Excellent. Excellent. Because how can folks get in contact with you if they want to stay in touch? Yeah, well, you can get in touch with me through my website. It's kazembe.net, K-A-Z-E-M-B-E.net. I also am an assistant professor of education and uh, Africana studies at IUPUI, which is Indiana University in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. So you can do a search on IUPUI. I'm very easy to find in that regard. My email address and phone number are well published. Okay, excellent, excellent. Kazimbi, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your time today. Excellent. Thank you for being here. Anytime, anytime. Okay, excellent, excellent. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast. I hope this information was valuable for you. Thanks again for your time. And until next time, be blessed and be well. Take care, everyone. Bye bye.